Good afternoon, everybody, and welcome back to this week's installment of the Weiss Seminar. I know most of you, but for those who don't know me, I'm Rob Blyle, the Assistant Director of the Institute for the Arts and Humanities. And on behalf of the Institute, and particularly the Director, Marika Tacconi, I want to extend a particular welcome to our guests, the Weisses, and thank them for being such great partners. And I'll now turn things over to Linda Woodbridge, who will, who will introduce our guests. Thank you. Joe Weiss just told me I had to be brief. <laughs> <laughs> but I do want to welcome back to the Weiss Seminar uh, the founders of the feast, uh, Josephine Barry Weiss and her husband, Bill Weiss. Will you please stand up? <laughs> As I have talked. Anyway, uh, I, th I think we ought to all thank the, the, the staff. They've been really into this, and they've enjoyed it. And we've had many people. We're not here in town often anymore, but we've had many people that stop us and tell us how much they're enjoying it. So I think now it's time to relax and enjoy this one. Thank you. Thank you, Joe. I think I'm just going to leave it at that and just say thank you again. Good afternoon, and I want to thank uh, Joe and Bill Weiss as well uh, on behalf of not only myself, my students in English 497C, which is the Weiss Seminar, and Rob Lyle's students in English 197C, right? LA 197C. Um, it's really been a truly uh, dynamic semester for us, a unique learning experience, one that combines, as, as the Weiss's intended, in-class discussion with public lectures and field trips. Indeed, a couple weeks ago, as I was just sharing with the Weiss, Weisses, our classes visited the Philadelphia Museum of Art, and I have the tie to prove it, uh, the Mütter Museum at the College of Physicians and the National Constitution Center. It's one thing to have scholars and teachers talk about the objects and exhibits that are housed at Philadelphia's especially rich array of uh, museums and research centers. It's quite another thing for students to be able to go to Philadelphia and actually view these things. Uh, in person. More than one student on the trip told me that she or he had never visited Philadelphia despite growing up in Pennsylvania. And so the trip made possible once more by the generosity of the Weisses allowed them to do that for the first time. I wanted to um, give you one reminder which is our last lecture on December 10th. Uh, we will now, it'll now include not only a group discussion of David Liss's acclaimed novel, The Whiskey Rebels, published just last year, as has previously been advertised, but also thanks once more to the extraordinary generosity of the Weiss family, David Liss will himself be here with us to talk about the genesis of his novel and to answer questions from us about it. So this should be a real treat for us, and so please make sure to get on to Amazon.com or whatever your preferred site is, or go to Barnes & Noble and uh, get a copy of The Whiskey Rebels, which should be readily available and start reading it. Members of the general public, there'll be a quiz at the beginning of the lecture, so get going on that. <laughs> uh, now, Rodrigo. Uh, Rodrigo Lazo is Associate Professor of English at the University of California at Irvine and presently serves as an Associate Dean of Undergraduate Study in the School of the Humanities. He has also served as the Acting Dean of the School of the Humanities and as Acting Director of Irvine's Rich Global Cultures Program. 
Rodrigo teaches courses on Chicano and Latino literatures, 20th century poetry, and labor and ethnic literature among a rich array of courses he teaches in American literatures and cultures broadly defined across the centuries from the 19th century to the present. I first came to know Rodrigo, who received his PhD from nearby University of Maryland at College Park, through his pathbreaking scholarship, particularly his excellent first book, Writing to Cuba, Filibustering, and Cuban Exiles in the United States. In that study, Rodrigo shows us how a cohort of exiled Cubans um, writing from the United States during the antebellum period agitated as what Rodrigo terms filibusteros for Cuban independence from Spain and alliance with or annexation, annexation to the United States. Not only do I appreciate the originality of the text's arguments, but I admire how Rodrigo's recovery and incisive treatment of important but heretofore neglected texts authored in newspapers, political pamphlets, and other ephemeral media descends from his work as a journalist for the Miami Herald, a position he held for five years before attending graduate school. Indeed, many of the transnational figures Rodrigo examines in writing to Cuba were themselves journalists at one time or another, writing to, from, and across multiple locations in the Americas, the Caribbean, Latin America, and North America, a phenomenon that Rodrigo would have experienced firsthand while working as a journalist in what is arguably North America's most hemispheric of cities, Miami. We are privileged to have Rodrigo with us today to share some of his more recent research for his current book project entitled Constituting the Americas, Spanish Language Writing in the Early U.S. Republic in which Pennsylvania and Philadelphia, or more precisely, La Famosa Philadelphia, is a crucial locus. Rodrigo. Thank you. Thank you, Sean. That was a very, very generous introduction. Reminded me of the days when I was a, a reporter. Uh, and also thanks to uh, Sean for um, hosting me and uh, taking me out to dinner last night. I got into town a little bit on the late side, and he was gracious enough to take me out to uh, get a bite to eat. I'd also like to thank the, the Weiss family for funding this incredibly great uh, seminar. I mean, my only regret is that I can't be here for all the other parts of it, all the other lectures. And also, Thank you for, uh, to the Institute for uh, Arts and Humanities for uh, making this possible. Um, as Sean said, the, uh, the material that I'm presenting today is from uh, a book that I am uh, currently working on that focuses on uh, Spanish language publication in the early United States. Uh, and what I'm going to do is I'm going to give you, start out by just kind of setting the scene for you by giving you a picture of some of the books that were published, some of the figures who were moving in and out of this um, area. And, and part of my argument will be that Philadelphia is a really central place for uh, this, the emergence of this print culture. Um, and then at the end, I'll, I'll spend some time uh, offering some analyses of, of, uh, of the materials. Uh, just to, um, just to, to start out by, by letting you know where I, where I came up with the, uh, the idea for, for this project is, when I was doing uh, research for this book, that, uh, and again, as Sean was saying, it, it, this book focused, my first book focused on the 1840s and 1850s, uh, uh, particularly Cuban exile writers. Uh, there was this sense of a tradition uh, already circulating at this time, meaning that these writers often spoke and invoked uh, text that had been published earlier in the 19th century as a sense of here's what was done by our, you know, uh, uh, in earlier generations. So, the sense of publication in the United States 
uh, in order to be circulated not only within U.S. cities but also in uh, other parts of the Americas went back to the early part of the 19th century. And I continually saw these references and uh, ultimately uh, decided to, uh, to go back to that earlier pe period. Uh, uh, so they, because there really is a sense of a tradition in the sense of a handing down or a, an influence that continues all the way until the late 19th century when you get the arrival of uh, Jose Marti, who's a, a, a well-known Cuban exile, who uh, also then plugs into this kind of uh, publishing for, um, for uh, circulation outside of, uh, outside of the United States. Um, I'm going to show um, why Philadelphia is important to the production of these uh, materials. Uh, and in doing so, I hope to uh, add a, a dimension to, uh, to this term, the age of revolution, which is part of, uh, part of the seminar. Uh, um, but the publication of Spanish language texts on, uh, on, on which I focus emerged in conjunction with uh, the revolutions of what we today call Latin America, back then most commonly known as uh, Spanish America. Uh, most of the Spanish colonies rebelled between uh, the 1810s and 1820s. Uh, the period known among Latin Americans, Latin Americanists, as the Wars of Independence. Uh, so these wars were very much a part of the of spirit of the age that I think goes back into the uh, the U.S. Revolutionary period. And one of the things that comes up at the, as I do this work is the way uh, a question about the way the conceptions of fields in relation to period uh, can really influence how we view certain uh, materials, and in some ways cut out the possibility for alternative ways. So for example, what is known as the period that is known as the Wars of Independence in, among Latin Americanists is usually the U.S. early republic among U.S. historians. And so those very different kinds of uh, frames uh, cut out this, this moment in which you have both uh, a kind of Latin American print culture functioning within uh, what might otherwise be known as the, the U.S. Uh, early republic. Uh, but what I, what I, part of what I want to show is how this, this sense of, uh, of Philadelphia, it's going back to 1776, uh, and particularly the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution, really uh, continues to inspire uh, th uh, intellectuals into the 1820s. I mean, I've put this little uh, this timeline here to, to kind of uh, to give you a sense of you know, some of the other moments when other countries declare independence. Uh, Grand Colombia, which is ultimately the territory that becomes Colombia, Venezuela, and Ecuador, 1819, and Mexico, 1821, and so on. It goes on. Uh, we might even push that more if we want to talk about the uh, revolutions of 1848, or even if you think of, uh, of Cuban uh, uh, independence fighters in the late 19th century, they continue to invoke the U.S. Constitution. So this age of revolution, definitely through the 1820s, we might even uh, push it uh, even further in terms of the, the temporality of, of revolutionary inspiration. Um, one, uh, one question that I want to take up is what happens to Philadelphia when we consider it in a hemispheric sense? Uh, and here Philadelphia is very much tied to uh, a kind of sense of America, right? It's like a, a, at times even considered as uh, the, the, uh, the, the model of what, of what becomes uh, America. And so uh, so for the, the, the figures that I'm going to be talking about today, Philadelphia and America are, are intertwined. And so I want to start by just giving you a, um, a provocation here that's not mine, but uh, someone else's. Uh, in 1987, the um, artist Alfredo Haar uh, put up an installation in Times Square uh, that ran every six minutes for a two-day period. Uh, and it's an installation uh, called the Logo for America, in which 
he really, in some ways, calls on us to, uh, to reconceptualize America outside of the boundaries of the U.S. nation. So let me just play this clip for you, and then you'll see what uh, the, the kinds of uh, questions this raises. Oops. On the so I wouldn't go forward. I would go. Thank you. Okay, so um, this kind of shift then from a national association uh, with America to the hemispheric uh, implications of the term uh, raises some questions about language and territory and the way a word can frame the way we conceptualize the space. Uh, and that is precisely what comes up uh, when, uh, when we think of uh, Philadelphia in this uh, period of the early 19th century. Uh, Philadelphia, of course, is a national city, is widely considered by Latin Americans as, Latin Americans as a national city, a capital, and ideologically speaking, the most national of the cities in the early uh, U.S. Republic. Um, but for some intellectuals from uh, other parts of the Americas who, who made their way to Philadelphia, uh, it wasn't just a, a city but a conceptual space, a symbol that moved the United States uh, beyond its limits. Uh, um, they had a belief that Philadelphia had implications that were both political and economic. Political because the U.S. Constitution has had a lot of tractions in the constitutional debates throughout the Americas, but also economic because commercial relations bring together Philadelphia with other parts of the world. I want to emphasize the connection of the economic and political and the emergence of what became known as La Famosa Philadelphia. Okay. Uh, this was the term that was often used in, uh, in the writings, uh, and um, it's, uh, it's, it's a term that, uh, that really, really shows the importance of the city in the terms of the word famosa is etymologically closest to the English famous uh, from the Latin fama, which means to talk or report, so the sense of it was, it was widely talked about. Uh, but the connotation is closer to the other sense of famous, which is celebrated or widely known. And there was this, uh, even by the 1820s, you get this sense from some of the writers who are arriving that they're, um, they're walking on ground that has already been covered. I'm once again here. You know, it's like they, they really already in the 1820s have a sense that others have come before them in terms of uh, reaching this place, La Famosa Philadelphia. Uh, and it was because of the Declaration of Independence and the U.S. Constitution as these kinds of model documents that they were then uh, reading and debating and uh, in the consideration of what was going to happen in, uh, in, in other parts of the Americas. Um, Philadelphia became celebrated because it offered a haven for liberal intellectuals, some of whom had to go into exile because of opposition to Spanish colonial rule. 
And so it becomes an important site in the hemisphere and Atlantic world, not only for people from Latin America, but also from Spain. There were certain Spanish liberals who left Spain and then came to uh, Philadelphia and established themselves there. It's, a, it's an important destination for people fighting to end colonial rule and for those seeking an end to monarchical rule, rule throughout the Spanish Empire. Uh, but it's also a very important publishing center. Uh, and one of the passages that best spells out the place of Philadelphia in the political imagination of some intellectuals is in a book called Ideas Necesarias a Todo Pueblo Americano Independiente que Quiera Ser Libre. Oops, there we go. Sorry, this was a part of the... There we go. Um, this, uh, the translation is Essential Ideas for All Independent American People That Seek to Be Free. And here you get the sense of all independent American people. If you go back to the Alfredo Haar logo for America, obviously the, the use of America here is uh, not just in relation to the United States. This book was published in uh, 1821 uh, with a Philadelphia imprint. Uh, and I, I've put this, this kind of grainy copy on the right side just to give you a sense of the different things that are, that are available. This, was, uh, this is actually just a PDF from a, uh, a copy that I have um, that, that was from a, um, this one here. It's, it's from a, a microfilm that I copied some years ago. But now this book is available on uh, Google Books, and this is actually a copy of the Google Books. So even just, this, I just throw this in aside to show the way the archival, question, the archival availability is changing just e even in the last, last few years. Uh, so um, the editor of this book was uh, Vicente Rocafuerte, uh, a very, very wealthy man of letters. He was a businessman, diplomat, uh, and ultimately became president of Ecuador. Okay? Uh, the, the, the wealth of Rocafort is kind of hard to capture, but I think the, the best image that I can give you is that at certain points when he traveled, he would have a train of donkeys carrying his books. Uh, and he moved throughout the Americas and into Europe and would talk about, sometimes write in his journal about going to Paris the way people might talk about just taking a weekend trip. So we're talking about really someone who has a kind of wealth that allows him to make these, uh, these kinds of moves. Um, and so he, he makes his way to Philadelphia to publish this Ideas Necesarias. Uh, and what it is, it's a collection of Spanish language translations of the following documents. Tom Paine's Common Sense, Declaration of Independence, the U.S. Constitution, and the Articles of Confederation, and some, uh, some additional documents. So these represent the foundations of the U.S. nation and are intended to provide a guidepost, a guidepost for the new governments emerging, uh, in, in, uh, in, whether it's in his native Guayaquil or in Mexico or some other places. In his introduction to this volume, Rocafuerte says he plans to send out to the newly independent these territories uh, uh, he wants to send out these documents, and he begins by, by emphasizing the place of Philadelphia in, um, in the creation of this book. And this is what he says about Philadelphia. And where would I find memories more sublime, lessons more heroic, and more worthy of imitation, and situations more analogous to our actual political situation than in this famosa Philadelphia? He goes on to call Philadelphia the, quote, asylum of the oppressed, center of lights, bastion of liberty, and spirit of independence. In order to develop a hemispheric sense of America and to draw an opposition be between, quote, the false glitter of a petty imperial crown, 
And then on the other side, the sublime institutions left behind by Franklin, Hancock, Hamilton, and that group of great men, end quote. So the necessary ideas here are that the constitutional principles will be spread to establish new countries in the, in the hemisphere. And again, the sense of a, different, a difference between uh, what it means to be American in the hemispheric sense versus what it means to be uh, European. Okay, so in one of his autobiographical piece, pieces, this is uh, published later in life after he's already president, uh, Roccoforte writes about how he, he was in, in Havana uh, and he needed to uh, go to, to publish, he doesn't decide it's to Philadelphia. Uh, he was also involved in all kinds of business dealings usually, so you know, he'd go there and probably you know, purchase something to then sell somewhere else, uh, whether it's sugar or materials like that. Uh, but also the, the interesting thing to consider is that publication in Latin America was difficult. There, uh, the number of printers just, uh, were, it was, there was a limited number of printers. So to go to a place where there were, like uh, Philadelphia, where there were so many uh, possibilities for printing materials uh, was really a way to get around not only the limitations of, uh, of the print, but also censorship in, uh, in Latin America. So... Um, so Rocafuerte commissions this publication, and he's, he's wealthy enough to pay for a run of these books. Uh, and then he wants to send the book home to Guayaquil. Okay, so, uh, so this is what, what happens just if we look at the circulation of this book. Okay? Uh, it also makes its way to Cuba, and to the point where there, there are some Cuban uh, bibliographers who actually want to make an argument that it's published in Cuba, not in Philadelphia, that the Philadelphia uh, printing is uh, it's not a real imprint. Um, but we have records that show that he was in the U.S. at that time and, and, and dealing with printers. It also makes its way to Mexico City, where uh, it's published in a second edition in 1823, a couple of years later, and then we can presume that some of the, some of the copies uh, made it home to Guayaquil in, in South America. Uh, and so what we have is the, the creation of a book that is circulating outside of the place of its imprint, and again, the sense of Philadelphia is going out and communicating uh, with these uh, other places. Um, as Rocafuerte travels to these various destinations, whether it's here or London, for example, he's engaged in a lot of commercial transactions. So his concern for independence in the Americas is also a commitment to free commerce. Rocafuerte closes his introduction to Ideas Necesarias by calling on his native Guayaquil to establish a new government that will provide the advantages of free commerce and representative government. By combining republicanism with liberalism, supposedly Guayaquil would grow economically as it eliminated monopolies and royal companies. As a city with a river that would provide easy access to the Pacific, Guayaquil was destined to, quote, by nature to become the commercial center of the west coast of America. So for Rocafuerte, then, the political principles of the United States feed into an economic imperative of a Creole elite that wants free enterprise to replace Spain's monarchical economic institutions. Okay, so one more example of uh, a figure that makes it to Philadelphia and writes about it. In 1824, Jose Maria Heredia arrives in Philadelphia because he has been forced into exile for participating in a plot to overthrow colonial rule in Cuba. And there's a an infamous uh, plot known as uh, Rayos y Soles de Bolívar, uh, which involves, uh, uh, um, really in some ways alarms the, the, the Spanish colonial rulers in Cuba. And so he needs to sneak out, basically, in the, uh, and get on a ship and, uh, and make his way to the United States. Uh, Heredia comes to be known historically as one of the great romantic poets of the era. 
Uh, and, and so often he's talked about in terms of some of his, his poems, but he's also an important contributor to Spanish language writing in the United States. During 18 months in the Northeast United States, he travels widely. He goes to uh, New York, Niagara Falls, and then he, uh, of course, has to go to Philadelphia because that's the place where you, you really need to go during this time. Um, and he writes a letter to his uncle while he's in Philadelphia in which he recounts an afternoon stroll going through the city. Okay? So he's, he's talking about, you know, then I get to the waterworks, then I get to this, this other place, uh, and then he talks about going to the Bank of the United States. Uh, Without doubt, he says, is the most beautiful building I have seen on Earth. I enjoy strolling under its portico, where a delicious breeze reigns at all times. I believe that in its makeup, it took the model of the Parthenon in Athens, but I doubt that the latter, even during its pinnacle, can rival the American building in simple elegance and beauty. Okay, so praising the simple elegance of the adaptation, as well as the magnificent columns Heredia elevated the American building over its Greek predecessor. In its estimation, the building had come to represent, quote, the triumphant achievement of human ingenuity. I single out the bank because its architecture allows Heredia to emphasize an anti-European dimension of his appreciation of Philadelphia. And some of that is, but I also single it out because it's a bank. I mean, that's, I think that's an important aspect of what I'm, gonna, what I'm trying to develop here. Um, now, Heredia, if you get further into the letter, actually is ambivalent about Philadelphia. He uh, goes through and he says, this, is, this city is too ordered. I prefer New York. Uh, and and uh, ultimately, his most romantic moment in the city, the moment where he really is when he goes into a museum and sees the skeleton of the Macedon that's, that's, that's uh, on display. And that's when he experiences this, this romantic, sublime moment, right? So. Uh, the reason I raise that in terms of what I'm reading as a kind of ambivalence about the city is that I think, I think a lot of this writing is like we have to take it in terms of a kind of moment of rhetorical positioning, right? In terms of, I do think that, they've, that they look up to the United States, but uh, some of these statements are also being deployed in relation to expressing anti-European positions, but also to intervene in different debates that are going on uh, in Latin America. As a spatial story, Heredia's life continually shifts away from local settings to hemispheric movements. Born in 1803 in Santiago de Cuba to a judicial functionary for the Spanish crown, Heredia first moved with his family at the age of two to Pensacola, Florida. His father was then posted to various places and the family spent time in Venezuela, Mexico, and Santo Domingo. Before the age of 20, Heredia had moved away out of a national territory, even though he is widely viewed as a nationalist Cuban poet. And this is one of the effects of Cuban historiography, which after 1898, in the early 20th century, you have this uh, intense archival recuperation of people like Heredia. And so if you go back and read the, the, the accounts of it, they're very detailed in terms of getting into every, every little document that's available to him. I mean, I think what I might compare is some of the uh, work that Herschel Parker does on Melville uh, today. It's like, you know, the, the, the Cuban historiographers are doing that for their uh, writers during the colonial period in the early 20th century. Um, so, uh, in a, but in, and here's one of the ironies of this great, you know, the great nationalist poet is that uh, his poem, uh, Himno del Desterrado, The Song of Exile, 
uh, often considered a major work of Cuban literature, was written on a ship in 1825 as Heredia traveled from New York to Mexico City. The, and that's where he spent the longest continuous period between 1825 and his death in 39. So he spends almost two years in the U.S. and then goes to Mexico for the rest of the time. And it is response to Philadelphia and to the United States in general is exemplary of the kind of double vision that appeared in the writing of intellectuals in a circle. Like his peers, Heredia simultaneously invents America as a hemisphere and invents America as a nation, the United States. We can see the comparative dimensions of this double vision in lies from a letter he wrote in Boston on December, uh, in December of 1823. And here again, I'm translating. This is what he says about Boston. What a beautiful city. I have been impressed by the order that reigns in her. Every house has a plate made of copper or wood bearing the name and occupation of the inhabitants. This is an excellent way to facilitate commerce. Everyone looks busy, and I have yet to see a beggar or someone beset by misery or poverty. Fortunate country, despite its weather, it is favored by heaven with kindness. I love that, despite its weather. He's always talking about being cold there. This note about the fortunes of Boston is preceded by a comparative passage in which he considers Boston in light of Cuba. Supposedly the horses in Boston are bigger than the ones in Cuba during this time. Uh, he writes admiringly about the United States because uh, the invention of the U.S. Republic is inextricable from uh, an attempt to invent the hemisphere in contradistinction to Europe. So by these terms, the United States becomes a political and economic vanguard uh, for the hemisphere. Okay? I now want to just give you a few more examples of the kinds of uh, uh, materials that were published so you can get a real sense of the variety of the Spanish language uh, um, material. Um, we're, not, we're talking about several dozen books just in Philadelphia and several hundred of you bring in uh, New York and some of the other places of publication, New Orleans, etc. Um, and in Philadelphia we saw, for example, dictionaries, history books, poetry books, Masonic manuals are quite popular in terms of Spanish language Masonic manuals, novels, pamphlets, etc. So I'm going to give you just some examples here. Um, this is a translation of the Constitution. Uh, translated uh, by Manuel Villavicencio, and it's a 28-page pamphlet with uh, full translation and the, and, and the amendments. It is dedicated to the illustrious College of Lawyers in Caracas, Venezuela, and it has some traction in Venezuela because a couple of years after it, it, it appears, there's a book in, published in Venezuela that uh, that includes this translation. So we know it gets there and it seems to have some kind of circulation. Villavicencio is in Philadelphia for a short time and then uh, returns home. Okay, so here's a, again a, another example of a kind of very uh, overtly political document. But then we have this uh, primer, El Director de los Niños para Aprender a Deletrear y Leer. It's a primer to, to teach children how to read and write. Uh, and it's not to be confused with El Pequeño Director, The Little Guide, which is the pocket-sized version published the same year. So we've got two examples of a primer that's being uh, published in Philadelphia and uh, circulating. Uh, and it's writing with religious instructions. Okay, Dustin and I were talking about it uh, at lunch, about the, the, the way that primers sometimes uh, can, can de deploy a kind of uh, ideological instruction also. Um, but, but here what interests me is that you get the publication information and it is uh, as you can see um, down here, we barely see it. It's Mat Mateo Carey. 
spelled Matio, Matio Carey. I'm going to talk about him in a minute. Uh, and so on, on Market Street, as the, the, the publication information says, uh, this, uh, Carey publishes this book, and he commissions a translation of, this is a translation, I believe it's from a French book, um, but it's, uh, again, this idea of, a, of something that is not overtly being published for a political purpose. The third example that I want to give you just in terms of text is uh, the novel Hikotenkal, which offers another perspective on the 1820s in terms of indigenous uh, uh, novels that deal with indigenous topics. We have, of course, Cooper's Leatherstocking Tales and Hope Leslie and Hobomok, and now we have Hikotenkal published anonymously in Spanish. Uh, and um, this novel has received significant critical attention because you can deploy it in, in other ways in terms of other conversations that are going on in the U.S. literature. Uh, but also, it was uh, one of the, uh, uh, th this edition that I put up here is one of the uh, first books published by the Recovering the U.S. Hispanic Literary Heritage Project. Uh, it's a historical novel set uh, uh, during the conquest of the Aztecs, uh, and it has Hernan Cortes as a villain. So there's like this idea of the Spanish villain, the heroic uh, indigenous figure. Uh, and again, it's a Philadelphia uh, publication um, that, uh, that, I think tells us a bit about, um, oops, no, I don't want to go there yet, um, that uh, tells us a bit about just the, the print culture, okay? So it's published in two volumes, original, the original version, not this reprint, uh, and they're uh, three and a quarter by five and a quarter of the inches, or it's the size, so there's these two small volumes, uh, printed by Guillermo Stavely in 1826, and this fantasization of the Printer names is kind of fun to, you know, William Stavely, right? What I want to emphasize right now is a short note that is printed opposite the copyright page. And that is information on where you can purchase this book, okay? Se encontrará en Filadelfia, so you can buy it and you can find it in Philadelphia, at the house of Mr. F. Marino, professor of Spanish language, and also at the Franklin Institute. So the Spanish language book is being sold at the Franklin Institute. And, and at another uh, place of another gentleman named uh, Mr. Laval on uh, 118 Chestnut Street. So it's giving you three different places where they're selling this novel. Uh, and also in New York at, uh, at one of the uh, booksellers in New York. So this tells us quite about, a bit about the circulation of uh, Hispanophone materials in Philadelphia. Guadalcafuerte's Ideas Necesarias and the Constitution for the Lawyers in Caracas were commissioned for political export we also have a Spanish language book trade that is emerging within the United States. And the start of a Hispanophone community, which we can begin to call a nascent Latino community, perhaps. Uh, and uh, so we're talking about several hundred people now buying books in the Northeast uh, in Spanish, uh, and educated book buyers who are, uh, because most of the people coming to the United States from Latin America and Spain at this moment are highly educated and, uh, and have uh, some kind of uh, resources. Uh, and so it's, it's this community that I think I would venture that begins to explain the following publication, which is so rare that I just don't have an image for it. Um, this book was published by the Carey House, and the, Perry, the Carey House goes through several incarnations. It's Carey, and then it's Carey and Leah. This is, a, this is a, um, uh, published by Carey and the, uh, the Carey House during the holidays in late 1828. It's El Aguinaldo uh, para el año 1829, for this Aguinaldo for the year 1829. It's a beautiful little gift book uh, with gilded pages, and uh, the, it's, the front and back covers have an illustration. 
um, and it's got plates inside. It contains some miscellaneous of offerings inside poetry, essays, some, some pieces with a political content. There's a dialogue between George Washington and Cortez. Uh, and, um, and, and, and again, it's just a really, really nice uh, little book that, that makes sense as a kind of gift book. Now, the word aguinaldo uh, is uh, one of the translations that is a gift bestowed on someone during Christmas or the Epiphany. So it's an actual gift. Uh, but the opening poem, which is a poem to the aguinaldo, uh, does a nice little language play with this word and says that aguinaldo can also mean friendship, memory, affect. It expresses feeling. And then there are these lines uh, in this poem that talk how, about how women are now looking for this book, this Aguinaldo. And it says, Se va buscando como se buscaban antes los abanicos y los lazos. And so what that means is that people are seeking the, this book the, one, the way they once sought fans and bows. A lazo is a bow. It's can, it can also be a bond. Okay? So um, in this case, it's talking about this analogy between these commodities, you know, bows and uh, uh, fans, uh, and the book. Uh, the book is something that you can purchase. Uh, and that's something that we cannot cut out, uh, is the profit motive uh, in the publication of Hispanophone materials. And one of the challenges is now, how do we bring that together in terms of these uh, things that are being published with a political content at the same time that there's a kind of, uh, uh, th there's an economic uh, movement that's taking place. Uh, you have a meeting, I would argue, of the political imperative of hemispheric independence and the economic impetus of the book trade. One, uh, an important figure for us to really work this through is um, Matthew Carey, whose, uh, uh, whose publishing house is probably the most influential one uh, in, in the 1810s, 1820s, and, or actually through most of the uh, early republic in, in Philadelphia. Uh, as scholars such as Rosalind Rummer have shown, Kerry was a businessman who tried to open new markets in the western United States and even other countries. The account books for the firm in 1821 and 1822 show that Kerry, the Kerry House was trying to set up regular export businesses with Chile, Brazil, Puerto Rico, Haiti, and Buenos Aires, and also destinations in Asia. In 1822, the outgoing letters from Kerry to a bookseller in Havana named Luis Castagnino says the most, these letters are talking about the ways to send payment. And Kerry says one of the most, uh, best ways to pay him is with cigars. Uh, and then he says, or the, the house says, if you can procure, this is, I'm quoting from the letter now, this, if you can procure the Cabana brand, they will sell well here. So get these, these are the good cigars that are going to sell, right? In addition, we have account books that show Carey's house commissioned a handful of translations into Spanish, including that primer, but also a translation of Tom Paine's The Rights of Man in 1821. Okay, so what I want to do now is just spend the, uh, the rest of, of, my, uh, of my time here uh, analyzing the implications of these various uh, um, publications and the, and, the, and the intellectuals that are moving through. Through its print culture connections, Philadelphia moved far outside its physical city limits. It was a hemispheric American city because intellectuals seeking to establish a north-south constitutional continuum and develop new political institutions in the southern Americas embraced its representative power, its symbols, foundational national documents, and printing presses. These thinkers engaged in the exchange of ideas about philosophy and government by publishing texts in the United States while concurrently attempting to address local conditions in their home countries. 
Accordingly, Philadelphia's print culture can help to illuminate the productive tension between cosmopolitan enlightenment thought and the exigencies of emerging communities during and after the wars of independence in the Americas. Because these texts were published with revolutionary fervor at the same time that armies were battling against Spanish colonial forces, it is tempting to consider them in light of a theory of the public sphere, which in Jürgen Habermas's formulation is a sphere of intellectual interaction that is separate from the state and civil society and thus gives rise to a print discourse and salons. Anna Brickhouse, for example, has argued that during the antebellum period, there were Hispanophone, Francophone, and Anglophone public spheres in tension with one another while contributing to the rise of nations. If this is the case, writes Nicolas Canelos, quote, then the sphere of discourse which the Hispanic intellectuals were creating at the beginning of the 19th century was immense, stretching from Cadiz and the Spanish Cortes to cells of revolutionaries operating in London, Philadelphia, New Orleans, and throughout the Spanish colonies in the Americas. In the case of Philadelphia, the publications promote a public sphere only as part of a broader process of textual production. So let's briefly consider a theoretical framework that helps us to take into account the different types of texts and the relationship of a city to a larger territory in the Americas. Philadelphia with an F is simultaneously a physical bounded area, the city, a space produced by the vision of visitors moving through it, and a space that has imaginative and material relations to other spaces in uh, both the US and other parts of the, uh, the world, really. David Harvey, in his work on global capitalism, has emphasized the importance of, a space as, as, uh, of space as a keyword that calls for an analysis of the mutual influence of the material realities of a place, what he calls absolute space, and the symbolic and imagined effects of spatial movements. Harvey separates space into three categories. Okay? First is absolute space. An absolute space, it's an example we can use the room we're in, right? This is a limited, bounded territory. Um, relative space, and that refers to the different experiences that people have within a, uh, an absolute area, so that the people in the back may not be seeing this, this place that we're sharing here in the same way that I am, right? In terms of everybody's going to have a relative perspective. And then there is the third, which is relational space. The way this particular material reality is considered in relation to other places and experiences, so that as we come into the room, we're bringing all kinds of different associations, you know, about this room, or, you know, is it a nice, uh, you know, is it a nice uh, uh, place to, to have this, this talk as compared to other rooms? And that is the kind of stuff that, that, that you can see uh, operating in the, some of the texts where going to Philadelphia motivates a comparison with another, with another place. And if we consider Philadelphia in relation to the spatial theory, you have the absolute space of the city, the relative space of perception, and Heredia provides the example of that by walking through the city, and you have the relational space of Philadelphia considered vis-a-vis uh, -vis Guayaquil, right? So, so, so you have all that. Add to that a historical conflation, Philadelphia of 1776, which is Rocafuerte's invocation of foundational documents, and these three are not separate because the material realities of absolute space are always in some type of relationship with these other relational spaces or, or the way that the city is being imagined. And what I, what I really want to do is not separate those two. And I want to give you an example that, is, that, that really, I think, gets at what I'm, what I'm trying to do here. 
the Ideas Necessarias, the book that I pointed to, um, uh, there have been arguments made that that book was actually not published in Philadelphia, that it was published elsewhere. Uh, but we have, we have documents that Rocafuerte actually published it here. Um, he, he used a printer in New York, okay? So the book was actually printed by a printer that was based in New York, but it has a Philadelphia imprint, okay? So, and he begins by saying, I'm sending this out from Philadelphia as in his introduction. So Philadelphia there, okay, functions not only as a literal uh, uh, place where, where the book is being printed, right? The reality of the printers in Philadelphia, but also the print itself is, has an, a whole symbolic connotation that is circulating. So it's not just that you're going to print in Philadelphia because they have great printers, which they do. It's also you're printing there because that, that's going to imply certain things. The result of all this, and this is, uh, I'm just going to really try to wrap up here and do it kind of quickly, but we can talk about all kinds of questions that, that should come up. But the result is both, a, is both productive and problematic, okay? Philadelphia with an F is a space where the categories of identification become unmoored. I, I think there's this real moment in which uh, the sense of being tied to a particular place just uh, is, is lost. The Philadelphia subject moves between colony and nation. Uh, so Philadelphia is productive because it prompts new, wave of, of new ways of conceiving humans' relations in the world, say hemispheric American, but it is also problematic because it does not always take into account markers of race and class that are important to the establishment of new nations, right? Hikotenka is a dead Indian, he's a great Indian, but what about the actual indigenous populations in Latin America? I have tried to raise questions about the temporal and spatial frame of Philadelphia in the age of revolution, and I have also proposed that the beginning of a tradition of Spanish language public publishing in the United States needs to be considered in a spatial frame that stretches to other parts of the Americas. Thank you very much for your attention. Great. So we have we have quite a bit of time left for uh, question and answer. So let's get started. If you have a question, I'll bring the mic and, and uh, we'll get started. Where did the uh, Catholic Church figure into all of this? Since the Spanish America was primarily Catholic, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, the, the Catholic Church functions in, in some... Uh, interesting ways. Through the 1790s, you've still got the in Inquisition in place. And so one example that I can give you is that th there's, there, there's censorship functioning uh, with varying degrees of intensity in different places. So that you cannot publish some of these things, particularly in the 1790s in the first decade, in, in many places. They'll just be banned and censored. There's, and the example I have is of a book that is uh, widely considered the first of the Spanish language books. It was published in 1794 called uh, El Desengaño del Hombre, Man Undeceived, by uh, an Italian immigrant to, to Philadelphia. Uh, and uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's a book that is basically an, an argument against monarchical rule. Uh, and, and, and talking about the need to, to eliminate it. Well, this book is sent to Mexico City, and it, immediately there's a, uh, it's banned by the Inquisition. And there's, a, you know, the, um, the library company has a copy of one of the, uh, the broadsides that is put up in, in a church uh, saying this book is banned, and if you have a copy of it, not only are you going to uh, fall under the wrath of God, but you're also going to be charged a certain amount of money 
So to have this book can can be uh, you know can be um, uh, you know can cost you. One more example, and I think in a, uh, of the way the Catholic Church can come in, into play here. Uh, there, uh, one of the figures who comes um, uh, to Philadelphia is a man by the name of uh, uh, Fray Servando Teresa de Mier, who's uh, a, a priest who's actually. Uh, excommunicated and sent out of Mexico for doing these uh, sermons that are against, you know, that, that supposedly go against Catholic teaching. And he then goes on and moves all through Europe and ultimately uh, comes to, uh, to, to Philadelphia and ends up getting involved in a controversy involving the Catholic Church in Philadelphia at the time. I have not had time to go and look at all the specifics of this particular thing, but there you have an example of, 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 a, of a priest who has to leave and then makes his way uh, to, to Philadelphia uh, as a place where he actually ends up publishing some material. Other questions? Thank you, Rodrigo. That was uh, really fascinating. I have actually a bunch of questions, but I'll, I'll try to focus on one or two. Um, the, the idea that Matthew Carey and other Anglo printers are printing these Spanish language publications and also having their names um, Hispanicized mm -hmm. was really interesting to me. And you mentioned that Carrie was commissioning some of these translations. And I'm wondering if you have a sense um, proportionally whether um, people are seeking out printers who are well established. Are there any Hispanic printers in Philadelphia at the time? Um, is just the kind of Carrie empire absorbing mm -hmm. all the possibilities in this case? Um, and whether he's doing it to the same degree um, with other foreign languages, um, whether it's the commissioning or the printing mm -hmm. itself, just to kind of put in proportion or put into scale how that's operating. Yeah, Carrie, there are actually other printers who are much more involved in Spanish language publication. There's a printer uh, named James Hurdle, H-U-R-T-E-L, whom I just haven't found a whole lot of information about. And he comes up quite a bit. So there are these other houses that are much, in some ways, are more, more common than, than the Carrie house. Uh, it seems like the Carrie examples are different because he's commissioning the translations and he is, seems to be selling these books in terms of a kind of a profit mode, as opposed to working with some of the uh, some of these um, in, intellectuals from Latin America, in terms of uh, of of, uh, of the of the publications. So uh, the Carey House, I think, it's, it differs because, it, as far as I can tell, it did, it did not publish the kinds of uh, commission books that some of the others do. But some of the smaller printers and Hurdle, for example, in the Carey uh, account books. Uh, Carrie will send them out to publish, you know, certain pages, you know, can you print these pages for me? And, you know, so they, they're actually commissioning work for me from one another when they need things to get done. So Hertel, from what I can tell, is a much smaller printer who uh, made himself available to the, you know, seemed to have a relationship with, uh, with these, uh, the, these intellectuals. So, but there are quite a few pr uh, printers involved. It's not limited to, to one or two. Uh, and so, um, again, the, the sense that, I, that I'm taking away from all this is just the vibrancy of the number of printers who are there who really, uh, in some ways, create a kind of economic situation where this publishing can be done uh, pro you know, in a way that may be more economical uh, than, doing it, than doing it elsewhere. Um, I haven't counted them up, but I suspect that there may be as many printers in Philadelphia in the 1810s, 1820s, as there are in all of Latin America. 
there are just very few printers throughout. Like in Mexico, there are you know, just a limited number of printers. So I'm not sure I can back that claim. I need to go through and really do the numbers on it. But it, just to give you a sense, it's that drastic in sense of just the, the kind of the, the, the vibrancy of the print culture. My question, I think, expands on um, Hester's Rodrigo a little bit, which is to say I'm looking at the, the caption underneath the carry print. He's actually speaking at that moment, not in the United States, but before the Irish House of mm -hmm. Commons. Um, so Kerry himself, as Rochelle Zuck in an earlier talk, talk was an Irish mm -hmm. immigrant. Mm -hmm. uh, last week, Ashley Whiten, talking about the Haitian Revolution and the French and French West Indian influence mm -hmm. in Philadelphia, brought up a, a French West Indian uh, printer at the time, Moreau de Saint-Marie, who was a very important figure, mm -hmm. contemporaneous to some of, and then you have people like Franklin and the Anglo-American sphere. So I'm wondering, on the local level, because you've complicated this notion of Philadelphia spatially and temporally so brilliantly, I think. Um, what was the, what was within Philadelphia, which is to say always without Philadelphia in some ways, mm -hmm. what if any relations existed between these immigrant groups, between Spanish Philadelphians, Irish American, mm -hmm. Irish and Irish American Philadelphians, um, uh, Anglo Americans, African and African Americans, mm -hmm. And I guess you could say that would be a more global question, like what kinds of interactions took right. place, particularly because you're, you're, you're suggesting the Spanish Philadelphia immigration is largely elite in some ways mm -hmm. at this time. And then printing house-wise was, was, from what you can see beyond, and this is consistent with Hester's question, mm -hmm. beyond uh, Kerry, I mean, was Moreau somebody they had any contact with? Mm -hmm. Franklin, um, who were some of the other publishing figures that the Spanish Philadelphians at least consulted, or if there's any evidence of that? Mm -hmm. That's a good, I mean, that's a great question in terms of, uh, th there are two, two matters that come up that, uh, that need further attention in terms of my project. And one of them has to do with just the, the number and extent of the Spanish-speaking population here, because we're not just, and, and when I say that, I mean the, 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 the population from Latin America. Uh, and Spain, right? That comes because there are also people learning Spanish that also figure into this into this book trade. Some of the books actually have notes, you know, for Spanish learners. So that, I think that's a, an, an important question that I have not pinned down in terms of how large exactly are we talking about? You know, I estimate that there may be several hundred in terms of uh, the Northeast, but how many? And then the other question is the one that you asked, which is a great question, is what, what kinds of other interactions are taking place in terms of other communities? Now, we have uh, the moment of this. The, this uh, uh, we do know, for example, at William Duane, William Duane, right? The, uh, the, the publisher is in, he's in communication. He publishes items in the Aurora when some of these uh, figures arrive. Uh, and, and we do know that they're involved in certain social interactions at certain times in terms of, uh, um, uh, you know, other, other groups in Philadelphia. But uh, in terms of, like, really pinning down what else may be happening, I think that's a great question, and not just at this moment, it's, it's like research that I still have to do. So. Because they all seem to share a certain, as you suggested, the, the, the key words were politics and commerce. With those, you know, with those, the roots of that being not just Philadelphia, but whatever their home nation or say, Moreau mm -hmm. and, and Saint Domingue, Kerry, mm -hmm. um, obviously in Ireland uh, and others. So it would seem like they would be alert to one another mm -hmm. in some ways that, hey, you're interested in publishing and printing for reasons that resonate mm -hmm. with, with why we are. Mm -hmm. so, yeah. So your talk suggested that to me anyway.
I'm curious about the way um, this relationship with Philadelphia developed over a larger period of time. Um, that through through the the you've now expanded the, the age of revolution to include through the 1820s. Does it? Are, is there an event like the Mexican American War, say, that sort of sours Latin American uh, views of Philadelphia and America as a mm -hmm. whole? Um, or does it decline, or is Philadelphia still seen as sort of a beacon of freedom? I mean, it's... I think you have that, te that tension that continues until today, which is uh, in relation to not just Philadelphia, but the United States, is this sense of a kind of admiration for its institutions and a certain critique that also emerges very ve vehemently in the 20th century, particularly as a result of the Cuban Revolution. Um, but in the 19th century, you have the, 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 the U.S.-Mexico War as a moment in which this, uh, this enthusiasm dampens. Um, I wouldn't pin it to Monroe, because Monroe in 1823 isn't quite uh, the Monroe as we come to know it later historically. At this point, they're, they're, I think it has a much different kind of valence when it's, uh, when it's originally uh, delivered. I mean, the, the sense of Monroe as being this kind of imperialistic uh, uh, document, um, I think, develops later as other people engage with it. And there's been uh, some interesting work on, on the Monroe Doctrine. But you do have an ongoing kind of tension, right, between, uh, between like a kind of, uh, ad again, admiration and, and critique of the U.S. particularly. As, but as late as uh, Jose Martí arriving in 1881, he's still talking about the, the great constitution. You know, so, so it, it continues to influence through. And in the 1840s and 1850s, the, you know, the period that I worked on in my other book, there, there's definitely the sense of uh, this is the way to go in terms of a kind of constitution for Cuba. Now, you said numerous of these gentlemen had been exiled, of course, and they found this not only as an intellectual, and sorry, an intellectual haven, but also as a physical safe mm -hmm. haven, a place where they were. Were writings of this sort allowed in country, or were they banned? And in that case, you know, uh, did they ever come about? You know, that in country it was allowed. You know, what was published within these countries that was about revolution or a change of ideas and mm -hmm. the colonial. Uh, ideas you have what you have in Latin America is a, a, a kind of a, a variety of contexts in terms of the kind of censorship and control that takes place and some of it uh, of course breaks down in terms of urban rural but also in terms of different areas and uh, in Cuba the control of what, what can be published there is, is fairly intense and that's why you have uh, people like Heredia coming and also uh, Felix Varela who is the, the a priest who comes is another priest who comes to and publishes a, 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 a pamphlet uh, that he sends to Cuba. So in Cuba, there's, there's definitely no, and, and once the materials enter there, uh, they're often seized and banned, and you know, they're, they're not allowed to circulate. Now, once you get into other parts of the Americas, the censorship may not be as, uh, as controlled, in part because uh, just Havana, I think, allowed for a bit more control in the way, you know, it's, whether it's a, a geographical question or uh, or, or even like the intensity of the of the Spanish colonial authorities in that particular place. So that that you know that would influence depending on what part of Latin America we're talking about. Uh, but for the for, for the for some of the uh, the better known documents that we know that uh, that were you know were calling for a kind of revolutionary moment, they they were just not not allowed to circulate. I mean, they, they would be seized or banned or. Uh, either by the Inquisition or by the the, the local, you know, functionaries as censor for working for the crown. Um, but those documents were still circulating, right? They were just not 
I mean, often in pamphlet form. I mean, for example, the Rights of Man was published in Venezuelan newspapers. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, they were circulating, and uh, and again, it depends on on where and, and how how wide, and you know, again, it's uh, uh, the interesting there is the the publication of a pamphlet because a pamphlet can be easily folded and just stuck and you know handed around, and that's that's where you get the the kind of the, the materiality of the text as being important. I like to always consider the size of the text because you know is it something that I can put in my back pocket, right, as, as one of the factors that, that influence. So yes, they, they, they were circulating, there were, you know, translations uh, around. I haven't um, addressed the issue of translation, which is a huge question. I've been, they're working on translations, I'm translating their, you know, certain writings, and this is actually uh, something that in my larger book I'm going to take up in some, in some detail, is the translation here, and the reason why it's important is because tra translation is not just from one language to another, but it's it's the literal meaning of or the other meaning of translation, which is the, a carrying from one place to another, right? And so they're translating in multiple ways. Uh, but again, there are problems there because the so the idea there that uh, whether it's a rhetorical move or an actual belief that you can just take this constitution and then apply it or, or you know, set up Philadelphia and Guayaquil, that that breaks down also, right? So there's a kind of uh, translation is a vexing issue that it's not always going to be so easy to carry something from one place to another. Um, I actually had a couple sure. of questions. Um, the first one is kind of more about the nitty-gritty to follow up on this other question about the, um, the publishers in Philly. Um, when they're communicating with, with people in, you mentioned Cuba and, and, and Chile, are they writing in English, Spanish? Do we have a record of their correspondence? Uh, the, only, the, the only correspondence that I've been able to find is from, it's in the Carey House, because we have, the, some of the Carey account books are available at the um, Historical Society of Pennsylvania and at the American Antiquarian Society. So you can go in and, uh, and they, uh, they're writing in English. I mean, in terms of the, the letters are going out in, in English. Um, and what about the typesetters? I mean, were, there, were they n native Spanish-speaking typesetters? That's a great question, and I have to be honest, I, I do not know. That's a, I mean, I, I've often wondered about if, if, if Hurdle, for example, becomes a place to go because there's a kind of facility in terms of the, 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 the typesetting. Uh, um, you know that 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 the, that the uh, some of the houses that publish a lot of the Spanish language books do they have that available in house in, in terms of uh, it's a really really great kind of you know uh, qu question about why why Hertel as opposed to some other printer in the, at the time would the translator I know you mentioned one translator in particular would he, would a translator ever serve as a typesetter that I'd. Uh, the two translators I know were kind of, uh, in, as far as I know, they're not, um, they're not typesetters. Yeah. Um, but again, that's a, you know, it's, it's, it's a great, th I thank you for the, you know, suggestion. I mean, that might be one way that, w that we're working uh, here. And I know Rocafuerte also does some translating. So some of the intellectuals themselves are translating. As, as well as uh, the, the commissions that are taking place. Okay, my last question. Oh, it's okay. Thank it's you for great. your indulgence. Yeah. My last question would be about earlier in the 17, even 70s and 80s. Mm -hmm. I know that you mentioned um, El Desengaño del Hombre in mm -hmm. 1794. Mm -hmm. What about, is there any, any Spanish language publication in Philly before then? Not that I know of, but um, I mean, as far as I... I as far as I know, the earliest is that, that 1794. And again, there it's, it's, you really don't have the, the movement out 
into uh, of the, the migration until the right after that. And part of that is that part of the migration is motivated by changes in Europe, right, where you have the, uh, the Napoleonic Wars and debates in Spain about the Constitution. So the Spanish liberals come to Philadelphia, and then, and then you have the events taken out. So it's the, 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 the historical context for why the migrations take place influence this. So as far as I know, 1794 is the, the earliest example that I've been able to find. I, was, I guess I was thinking more of, you know, uh, the study abroad experience, someone like Miranda, you know, who did the European tour and the, the trip through the north was more of like a, you know, a sideshow, sort of. It's a, so traveling through the United States becomes, um, you know, part of becoming educated, mm -hmm. of, a, of a Creole becoming educated. Mm -hmm. And I just wondered in the, before the 1808, for mm -hmm. example, if there's like if kind there's of grand like the grand tour as a kind of yeah not that I not that I know I know again it's a great it's a great question the the question of this the tour though is uh, is fascinating because again the sense of the traveling through Philadelphia becomes part of that right where you you have to go there that's why I said that Edia had to go there and um and even as late as the 1820s you still have like Lorenzo Savala going and doing his journey to the United States and going there and uh it starts to sound very similar, right? Where they're reading the previous accounts and they're almost, so that the account of the Philadelphia walking tour, the, you can really line them up and see how they're similar. Like one, one person will now talk about something that you seem to have read already, right? So they're, they're reading these accounts. And again, that goes to the kind of, the way space can be created through these imaginative realms where your experience of a particular space, in this case Philadelphia, was going to be influenced by something that, uh, that a person may have read on a, on a prior occasion. So now they're not just doing the walkthrough, they're doing the walkthrough in relation to a previous account of the walkthrough. Thanks very much for your talk. Uh, <clears throat> I, I'm struck in this image, right, by the way in which this can also, this is uh, de depicting a kind of act of justice, right? He looks indignant over pointing mm. at this hanging in the, in the newspaper. And uh, it's also capitalizing, I think, on a kind of, you know, a capitalizing on this kind of fervor for justice, right? Mm -hmm. and, and I'm wondering, in, in your, you know, rich discussion of, of print culture and um, of the disciplinary merging of uh, <clears throat> the early republic and the age of revolution, right? The sort of expansion of, of fields. If the kind of complication of, you know, Americanness um, that, that is at work in this project uh, also really seriously inflects ideas about what re constitutes revolution. If the, I mean, what in other words happens to the nature of revolution and the, the basis in a kind of reciprocity or justice, mm -hmm. you know, speaking on behalf of another. Um, in, in, the, in the traffic that you see, in the circulation that you see? Mm -hmm. Does it become much more hinged to, let's say, to commerce, or has it always been that way? I'm just wondering if, if, if you know, measuring the effects of like revolutionary theory mm -hmm. um, is something that, that this project is gonna be really exciting uh, and allow you to do. Uh, yeah, um, and it's interesting that re the term revolution does not come up much in the, a lot of these Spanish language documents. Um, so, I mean, to, to just approach it from a very, kind of like what, what's on the page, the question of what's on the page. Uh, um, in terms of, of a kind of, you know, the implications of a kind of uh, uh, 
revolutionary age that go, that goes beyond. And there, that revolution, for example, comes back in the 1840s and 1850s as a as the Cuban Revolution at that time, which is actually linked to some of these filibustering movements. But um, yeah, the sense. I, I, I mean, it's 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 interesting that. Um, uh, my sense is that a lot of the engagement with Philadelphia is with the documents, the uh, the Constitution, the Declaration, and some of the things that are published. So that's why public sphere seems such an, an attractive uh, um, approach for so many people. But um, in terms of talking about the accounts of uh, of revolution, um, I, I, one concrete example to to, to answer that is at um, whom I talked about does a translation of a Daniel Webster speech to commemorate the monument of Bunker Hill in 1824, 1826. So uh, uh, Webster does the speech, and the speech there are these uh, moments in which Webster's talking about the relationship of the US to the Americas. And so that becomes a kind of moment in which the, the implications of, uh, of, of a kind of prior, prior history, I think, come up in a in a in a translation of a document that's now going to you know in some ways invoke that that past so it's a, I mean it's a it's a good question in terms of the the you know the revolutionary the, um, the revolutionary moment in tension with the commerce I still want to um, emphasize that there's a kind of uh, uh, material dimension to to all of this that I think just cannot be cut, really cannot be cut out so. Maybe we've got time for a couple more, I think, and then wrap it up. I'm curious as to the effect of our Constitution had on the governmental structure of countries that followed in, because they obviously didn't do in France or in England, where there, you know, this same Constitution reached. Has this affected how countries have set their government the way we do with a president and, and what have you? Yes, and there are actually studies of this from people who do uh, studies of pol political theory that actually line up and compare all the constitutions. But you can really see it in some concrete ways, for example, in some of the materials that I'm working on where, uh, for example, in 1821, when you've got, you've got several uh, arguments that are coming out in 1821, and what has happened is that Mexico has declared independence and the, the plan that's put forward uh, is, involves a constitutional uh, monarchy. So they want to keep this kind of you know, monarchical figure, even as they're setting up some kind of you know, representative government. Uh, and part of the argument for a, a kind of US model is to attack that the, the sense of constitutional monarchy. So you have, as the debates progress in the 1820s, you have US federalism at the center of the debates you've got uh, documents that refer to uh, the Federalist Papers, you've got, um, and, and all of these come up in terms of, and so what you end up with in Latin America is at least in part a, an influence in a debate that comes from, that, that comes from, from, from the, uh, the actual constitutional debates. Fantastic questions, we're getting doubles now, people are so excited. <laughs> I was curious about um, the gift book um, being compared to things like bows and fans, mm -hmm. which you talked about as a kind of another commodity to be circulating. And I, I was thinking about um, the idea of young ladies carrying around gift books mm -hmm. as an ornament in the same way that a bow or a fan would be an ornament. Mm -hmm. It's a, a sort of m mark of social distinction, something to show off in this, in this sort mm -hmm. of way. 
And I, I'm wondering um, how much of that ornamental quality has to do with it being a Spanish language publication, mm -hmm. whether that would be seen as more of an ornament, if, if say a kind of a certain type of ribbon or a certain type of fan might be the fashion mm -hmm. um, coming from in a certain kind of style or from a certain place, whether you got the sense that having a gift book that's not in English mm -hmm. while walking around the streets of Philadelphia would have kind of served a similar elite, mm -hmm. if, if it was fashionable at a certain point to be carrying around these Mm -hmm. Such a gift books. No, that's a great, uh, that's a great, um, uh, that's a great question. And uh, just to give you a, just a little bit of background on this, uh, the appearance of this gift book, it's actually one of the latest things that, that I have uh, had an opportunity to look at. I'd seen some references to it, but um, when uh, Sean first asked me to to do this talk, I said, "Well, let me. Uh, I'm going to be going to the American Antiquarian Society. Let me see what I find to see if I can put some things in there." And uh, and the gift book was something that I just looked at. I just saw for the first time uh, at the end of the summer. And uh, but in terms of the ornamental quality, I have to tell you that that was my best work moment of the past year. It's just hanging out with this gift book because it was really as uh, it, it was really a kind of ornament. I mean, the ornament is the right word for it. It was this. Just uh, in terms of the kind of the, the the material that's used, the quality of the paper, the you know the the gilded page, the, the you know the gilded pages, the and the way it looks, it just doesn't it doesn't. It's a much the, the production I think of this book is really top of the line, and so there's the the I think I love that sense of ornament uh, in terms of that that particular connection. Now, how people responded to this gift book in terms of an actual his, historical account, that I I just don't know at this at this point, but. I just, I, I love that, yeah, the connection there is the, the ornament, right, so. Well, first I want to invite you to come back next week when we'll continue to go from within to without, from inside and outside Philadelphia, when Clarence Maxwell from relatively nearby Millersville University um, will talk to us about Bermuda in the Age of Revolution. And Philadelphia has a very interesting and vexed relationship to Bermuda at this time because of the illegal trades, um, smuggling operations that we've talked, a couple of speakers have gestured to. Um, and he's particularly, I think, going to be interested in African uh, ex-slaves and slaves who were part of that illegal trade between North America and Bermuda and the French West Indies. So we'll, we'll get to think about space and nation time and nation space in, in another kind of way next time. And I want us to come together and, and join our hands in a round of applause. I think you can see why Rodrigo is held in such high esteem by his <laughs> colleagues. Thank you. Um, Thank you. Great talk and great question and answers. Um, from everybody. So thank you very much.